Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, a podcast where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. We ask the guests to choose their favorite drink, they bring it along, and the drink sets the tone for the interview. So today uh, we're doing we're continuing our um, dry January. That means we're not drinking any alcohol in January. It's good to promote a little bit of balance, uh, although it is fun to get drunk at seven in the morning uh, with some of my other guests. In in January, as a community, we are doing dry January just to make sure we can pump the brakes, make sure we've got no uh, no uh, problems developing or habits unhealthy habits are developing. So if you're doing dry January with us, let us know in the comments down below. But without further ado, let's welcome Seth Andrews, who is a former evangelical Christian broadcaster uh, and now atheist activist. Seth is the creator and host of The Thinking Atheist, one of the most popular online atheist communities worldwide. The Thinking Atheist is not a person. It is an icon encouraging all to reject faith and pursue reason and evidence. Since its launch in 2010, The Thinking Atheist podcast has been downloaded over 50 million times. Seth has authored five books, including his latest offering, Christianity Made Me Talk Like an Idiot, which is fantastic. I blasted through that bad boy in one day. It was it just it was mind-blowing for me. Uh, with a mix of humor and heart, Seth Andrews uh, has spoken to audiences large and small in the US, Canada, Europe, and Australia about his former faith, the promotion of science and scientific skepticism, the importance of humanism, and why we should all pursue a personal relationship with reality. Without further ado, I would like to welcome the man with the golden voice, Seth Andrews. <laughs> uh, it's good welcome. to be here. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> much appreciated, brother. Thank you so much for coming out. It's uh, it's it's. I know we're just a small podcast, but it's um, I really do appreciate you take taking the time uh, to come out here and chat some deep topics with yeah, us. Yeah, you bet. Now it's nice to be asked. Thanks for the invite, brother. Uh, what uh, what are we drinking today, Seth? Well, you know, I, I'm a coffee guy, cream sugar, like a lot of cream and sugar. Um, but I just came out of strep throat, um, which sucked. It was just awful. And so I was doing a ton of sort of flavored teas and, I don't know, spicy teas and smooth teas and whatnot. So I'd just been in the habit of drinking tea. So today I've got this sort of pumpkin tea, sweetened hot tea, and that's what I'm drinking today. Awesome. And I, so initially you told me coffee, so I prepared a coffee and I was, I could have, I, I this is the first time I could have gone and made some tea, but for me it's 7am and I just, I just was like, nah, I want my coffee. So I've yeah, got yeah. my, I've got an iced coffee here, chilling, ready to go as we get into it. I'm bad. You know, it's funny. I ran out of my, um, you know, I, I go through, I don't buy the fancy stuff, but, um, I was at the store and they have a brand was on the counter called death wish coffee which i guess is one of the most caffeinated brands of coffee <laughs> on sale it's got a skull and crossbones on a black bag filled with coffee and i thought okay i'll give it a shot and you know the stuff's not bad like for the for the money i wouldn't do it again it's like 20 bucks for the bag but you know okay it was it was all right it was pretty good you know i was waiting for my fingers to shake and for my lip to quiver and for my <laughs> eyes to become wide uh, that didn't happen but i did get a chance to experience the death wish coffee so that was something <laughs> i like so someone should try at least once in their lives yeah yeah it's like eating a really hot chili or something it's like yeah. you just gotta you gotta live live it live it to the yeah. max yeah 
so um normally i don't do this but i'm thinking we should do it uh i want to ask you a question um really deep question just to jump straight into it if you could talk to your younger christian self and impart one message what would it be and besides like lottery numbers and things like yeah that. yeah it's funny <laughs> i i just finished writing a speech that has that question in it it's a speech that i'm going to be giving throughout the country but uh, the first time is when uh, i speak at the florida free thought event in orlando coming up middle of march and and because i have reflected on that if i was to get back in the way back machine what would i say mm. and it's hard to distill it down because it always sounds like a bumper sticker but i think if i had to beyond question everything would be question authority that would be the number one because christianity is an authoritarian model by design uh, yahweh's an authoritarian god and there's a hierarchy usually male that's placed over you and they say well you know obey i am the authority we see this in clergy who claim authority over their congregants of course we see this with elders in the family you know well it's your mother it's your father you got to do what they say well, I understand that to a degree if you're a young child and they are protecting you. But I think to be able to look at these sort of sacred icons, the ones who were supposed to know everything, the ones who we thought were just, uh, you know, wiser than us. And often they would give us the answer and kill curiosity in us. They wouldn't say, go out, challenge me, check this. And if you learn something new, tell me what it is and let's make every day a discovery. You know, they didn't do that. They said, here's how you ought to think about this. And if you don't, you're wrong. Uh, you're in sin. You're weak. You're going to hell. So if I could go back in time, question authority. You know, that mm. would be an empowering piece of advice. And if somebody, anybody ever comes to me and they say, well, you're not allowed to ask about this. I'd be like, all right, congratulations. You've now put that uh, number one on my whatever it is that you say yeah. i'm not allowed to question or challenge that is now number one on my list and i'm going to go exactly. after it and so that's the advice i would probably give my younger self today you know mm, that's interesting isn't i mean that it's because... funny it's like the the cockiness of youth you think you know everything when i was 16 70 you couldn't tell me anything i i was smug i was so you know, confident that I've been born into the right religion and everybody else was deceived and don't even get me started on those atheists. I was incurious mm. and in a smug kind of way that just shut my brain off. And I kicked myself because it was really decades before I became hugely aware of how much I don't know. The more I learned, the more I realized I did not know. And that didn't suck the joy out of my life. It made me want to know more anyway. And every day did mm. become a discovery and my whole universe opened up. And I think about the time I wasted. If I had not been so smug and incurious at the time, imagine how much further along I'd be today. Hmm. I do remember when when I, and I, I need to thank you too, because part of my deconstructing um, journey, um, a lot of it was watching Matt Delahunty scream at people on the atheist experience <laughs> from, uh, and watching Aaron Ra take down Kent Hovind. But um, there was a part of it that was watching your content that helped me kind of process um, my journey. So I wanted to thank you for that, um, first oh, of all. Uh, but um, 
but I, I remember when I first like came, the fog lifted, the uh, the the spell was broken when I first uh, had a personal relationship. When I first invited reality into my heart, I um I it was like being dropped in an alien world where it was like I had to re. It's like I had to re. Like everything was new. Like it was like wait, wait. So evolution is a thing that that actually happened, and and dinosaurs existed, and I can go to the fossil shop we've got around here and I can get a fossil and it's actually like 65 million years old. It's not like fake news, you know? And it was, it was, it was amazing. And, and, you know, like I started looking into big bang cosmology and like, and all this stuff that we learned that I just dismissed as a Christian. And, um, and it was amazing. It was a, it was a, for me, the, the deconverting experience um, was the most heartbreaking, but exciting time of my life. It was, it was a whirlwind of emotions. Uh, I think that applies to so much. I was like you. I used to, I was trained to make fun of evolution. Didn't know anything about it. Never read any legitimate science books explaining it or teaching it. I just knew it was wrong. We just made fun of it in our ignorance. But also, you know, when you slough off the shackles of superstition and you find yourself back at square one and you think, well, how much of how I feel about things was informed by my faith. And I had to go back point by point in terms of my values and say, well, how do I feel about this? And it ended up transforming so much. How do I, I used to be a death penalty guy, you know, eye for an eye, you know, mm. code of Hammurabi, ironically, yeah. you know, and I went back and I actually began to research, you know, how effective is it? Is it a moral thing? Are there discrepancies based on income level and and race and is it you know is it right to is that a solution you know if you kill someone we'll kill you back and i ended up reversing my position when it came to the legalization of marijuana i used to be this moral pulpit pounder kind of guy and now i'm like who cares uh you know it's ironic that we live in a country where alcohol is flows freely but weed <laughs> is apparently a problem and, you know yeah. reproductive choice lgbt rights gay marriage right to die issues um mm. healthcare world policy foreign affairs other religions all of these things i had developed my opinion about them because at a time when i was looking through god glasses and so if you leave the faith you find yourself going well wait a minute i, I need to go reevaluate and it is mm. astounding how differently I saw the world and how I'd come to totally different conclusions when I started mm -hmm. thinking for myself. People look at me and they're like, well, what happened to you? And I'm, I'm like, well, have a seat. <laughs> Let me tell you, you know, because I've, I'm, I now stand in contrast to the vast majority of my evangelical relatives who look at me and wonder what in the world happened <laughs> to this guy. The, the branch is broken on the family tree. The apple fell from the tree and rolled down the hill and landed in the pit of Hades. So, uh, that's kind of where I fell. I I often have this um this fantasy about because I always I get that question as well from family and friends and um and I can step them through like each step of my thinking and I I have this like desire to like lock them in a room and be like okay we're not like let's 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 talk about this let's like really like break down the issues like we're not leaving until this is like until you understand where i'm coming from um i just have this because like because it always like moves into conjecture and and you know like there's no 
you can't you can't get them to grip onto anything that you're saying because they move from one topic to another and things like that. And I just wish, I wish I could like I, I wonder often if I could if I could actually have a conversation with my young zealot self, if I could talk myself out of what I was experiencing. Oh god, or that's a I great question start. too. You know, we've done a lot of talking on the show about the psychology behind belief. What happens if you challenge a belief that is linked to someone's identity, whether it's religion or politics, especially. And brain science reveals that the same part of our brains activate with an ideological threat as it does with a physical threat. The amygdala mm. fires up in the same way, which is why you and I can go in and totally dismantle the book of Genesis. People say, well, I believe that humanity is is the product of two nudists in a garden with talking animals. And you and I go through and we're like, all right, well, hang on just a second. And we lay out the facts, thinking that the data is going to make a dent. How often have we not only not gotten any traction, but the people doubled down and they got defensive. And now I believe it doubly and you're going to hell and I'll pray for you. And it's because many of these people have a belief that's linked to their identity. And they are going to jump into a defensive posture anytime they feel that they or their beliefs are unsafe. And uh, if I was to go back and talk to my younger self for that reason, I would not go back and throw data at them. Here's what the facts are, damn it. And here's what the science says. I would use a lot of questions. I would never make my younger per, uh, self feel attacked or unsafe. I would come to them in a position where we were just kind of you know, being real together. And I would use I a lot and say, well, I've gone through this and I've, I've experienced a few, and I'm amazed at learning this. Mm. And, you know, if you're curious, I would love the, the opportunity to, to sort of pick your brain and then talk about this. And I would use very soft language because the younger self encountering the older self would have probably doubled down, folded his arms, put the walls up and said, You'll never change my mind. I'll pray for you. God bless. <laughs> That's probably what I would have done. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, I, yeah, it's amazing. Do you, do you, did you have Facebook or some form of social media when you were a Christian that you still have access to? Uh, let's see. Facebook started what? 2006 or five, something like that. I yeah. mean, I, I, I left the faith. It's funny, I, I really went dormant in my Christianity around 2000, 2001, and kind of did that thing where I, I kind of existed on the outer membrane, conveniently wearing Christianity uh, you, on my You were lapel, the seeds, you know? seeds scattered on the path. Um, yeah, I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I mean, I, don't, I didn't go to church, I didn't pray, I didn't participate in the faith, but it was just kind of that, well, of course, there's a Jesus, you know, if somebody asked me at a party. But, but you know, it was 2007 when I really got serious about uh, trying to figure it out. So, you know, a lot of social media, I, I'll tell you what I noticed about or my early days in social media was how differently I thought politically. You know, mm -hmm. God is a Republican. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I had that Republican. kind of attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Would, it, would, would, would God have been a Trump Republican or a non-Trump Republican? I, it depends on which God. If you cherry pick the Bible to find the best version of Jesus, there is no way 
I mean, you know, Jesus was problematic and we can have that conversation. <laughs> but if you think about Donald Trump in terms in terms of American <laughs> Christianity and you think about the teaching of Jesus, all right, what are the teachings in the Bible that we can we might be able to call admirable? Be humble, that's not Trump. Don't uh, love money, that's not Trump. Uh, be faithful to your spouse, that's not Trump. Don't lust, that's not Trump. Don't take vengeance because vengeance is God's, that's not Trump. Uh, don't bear false witness or lie or covet. Or, I mean, a time in it, don't be cruel, love the, love the poor and the disadvantaged. It, it, Trump fails on every single level, which is one of the reasons it's so maddening to watch these Bible-banging evangelicals in my country worship the guy who is really the antithesis of the best version of their God. And I've come to the point now where either they've been so primed for authoritarianism that an authoritarian <laughs> figure, right? They don't see a president with Trump. They saw no. a king. They yeah, saw a king. Absolutely, yeah. And they're primed by their faith to respond to a divine king figure. So all he has to do is wave a Bible he does not read in front of a church he does not attend. And that triggers that in their brain. There's God's divine appointment, and we will blindly follow him. I think there were other people who are genuinely cruel. And they loved his cruelty. They felt like that mm. strength. We're not going to take any crap. I think there are other people where it was just transactional. Yeah, he can be the most horrible person in the world, but he's going to give me what I want, which is a, a Christian dominionist culture where we call the shots. You know, we get the power. So yeah, he's you know he's an a hole, but hey, it's okay. You know, God uses flawed people, and he's going to give us what we want. Yeah, I, I used to say, God used a donkey; he can use anyone. Talk, you know. Yeah, I don't. If I was a, I don't think I would have bought Trump. I, I will say I was still a skeptic when I was a Christian. I used to go after, like, my parents met at Oral Roberts University, and if you don't know, people don't know who Oral Roberts is. He was a tent evangelist and a faith healer uh, back in the '60s. He used to put these uh, tents up, and he'd travel around. People would come, and he would be like, "Oh," and he'd heal people, and they'd cast off their crutches. And it was exposed later that they were actors, and they would travel with him. You know, and he built a um, a high, he built a university in my hometown, and then he had this vision, and he said he saw a nine hundred foot tall Jesus that appeared before him and told him to build this skyscraper, which will be dedicated, and he has to raise millions and millions and millions. Please send me your money because the nine hundred foot Jesus has adorned this. And even when I was a devout believer, I thought this guy's full of crap. This guy's a grifter. There's no way. And so I'd like to think there was a skeptic in me somewhere. And I yeah. think if I'd been that guy and seen Donald Trump, I would have had the same response. This guy's a con, Don the con, the grifter. He's, uh, you know, uh, the bankruptor in chief. Uh, beware. I'd like to think I would have seen him coming. But who knows? He's, uh, Trump definitely has, he's, he's grabbed the evangelicals right by the pussy, is like, is the word I like to huh. say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just, I, I just see so many um, evangelicals, like they post about Trump, like he's not a perfect man, but he's amazing. Um, and I'm like, come on. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I uh, don't know how you get there. Let's say he didn't <laughs> invoke the name of God. Let's just say you looked at him as a human being. What about that is impressive? But what about that guy and the childishness and the name calling and the tantrums and the bizarre? He called himself clairvoyant the other day in a post on Truth Social. I mean, he he clairvoyant. You know, he's putting these uh, 
uh, NFTs or whatever out where he's a superhero <laughs> with muscles and whatnot, lasers coming out of his eyes. I mean, I mean, who would look at that and be impressed? And I can't, yeah. I can't help it, but I, I judge people. I, I'm guilty. I look at someone who looks at that and they go, oh, ah, what an amazing man. And I think I am judging you now. I am judging. I'm making a judgment call about your intelligence and your character right now. I am doing so. It's funny. We we started this podcast with um, talking about um, rejecting uh, God, um, and then we've moved on to re um, rejecting Trump. And I feel like the Trump is more the Trump part's more offensive to people. I feel like people, if someone was was here a Christian believing um, Trump supporter, they would have left on the Trump conversation, but not on the God, not on the part where we're talking about the creator well, of the possible. universe. It's possible, and and there's some interesting science on this. <clears throat> Pardon me. It is almost harder for people to disagree about politics than it is for them to disagree about religion. Now, religion is often existing in the periphery in the ethereal people. Or, you know, they practice a cultural faith. They go to church. They have a Bible. They don't really know what's in it. But it's kind of a cultural thing. But politics really links more to people's values, how they see the world. And we often find that when you engage people in subjects about religion, you'll get some judgment, you'll get some piety, and you'll get some nastiness from time to time. But more often, when you talk politics, you know, your family dinner at Thanksgiving, and somebody brings up the president or a former president or whatever, that's when the sparks really fly. And I think it's because often our political viewpoints are linked to a value system. Talk about taking something personally. But I, you know, I have found that phenomenon to be uh, you know, a, a legitimate one. It does happen when you talk politics. Mm. Yeah, I've always, I've always, uh, well, not always, but I've recently thought that maybe a direct democracy could be a better idea than um, than what we've got got now. Where instead of electing leaders, we just elect, we you know, people get educated and elect certain policies that they think are good policies, and then the leaders that best represent those policies get put into. Um, to make sure those policies get done. But I also don't know very much about politics, so who knows if that's a good idea. Mm. Um, so moving um, back onto your story, what I, I need to I need to know what kind of Christian were you back before you became deconverted? Well, did you have a relationship with Jesus? Let me distill this down. Yeah, yeah. I, I had kind of a potpourri of Christianity in my life. My father was ex-Lutheran, extremely conservative. My mother was a Pentecostal, you know, and she believed in speaking in other tongues. And, and oh, you know, that, yeah. so it was a clash <laughs> of cultures. I went to a Baptist school. So I kind of had this, uh, a taste of a lot of it. And I was able to kind of choose which one I was most comfortable with, which was the more conservative. I'm not, I'm not a loud person. Um, I'm an introvert, which surprises some people. Um, I did believe in Jesus. I believe God was watching everything. You know, when I was a kid, I remember I would be a, I felt like I'm a sinner. I'm sinning, you know, and I would always say the prayer under my breath, please, please forgive me, Jesus, because, you know, I thought he is going to return in the rapture and I don't want to be left behind. I believe in a literal book of revelation, you know, the apocalypse would happen and I was trained to expect the skies to part and the trumpet to sound. And yeah, I I learned the Bible. I knew a lot of Bible verses. I thought I knew the Bible, but I knew it in the way that they 
either skipped over the bad parts, glossed over the bad parts, or or excused the bad parts. And they trained me to, to not be concerned. You know, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. It was a different time. Moral barometers were different back then, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, I was, you know, I went to church, and I had... Christian friends. I listened to Christian music. I worked in Christian radio. I, I, I was just a, it was really the, the tapestry that was my entire life. I wasn't a zealot. I wasn't a knock on the doors and go spread God's word. I wasn't bringing a Bible to public places. I wasn't, I didn't take mission trips, but I was a firm believer in a literal Jesus Christ and a literal Bible. So that's the kind of Christian I was. Hmm. Did you were um, broadcasting at the time, weren't you, as well, uh, for a Christian radio station? Yeah, that or... was. I started in 1990. Uh, worked for KXOJ Radio in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's a little hole in the wall. I got a job uh, working overnights, which is where a lot of people in broadcasting start. You know, they put you on the air in the middle of the night so you can kind of figure it out. They can decide if you're any good. And so it's kind of the entry door. And I graduated up. And then, you know, it's it, uh, contemporary Christian music was really a, a shoestring operation back in the early 90s. I mean, it was unpolished. It was, there are no <laughs> budgets. But there was a charm to that. I mean, I, in high school, I listened to the bands and went to the concerts. And the fact that we were kind of the underdog against the big secular record labels who had all the money. It, there was something charming about having this niche that belonged to us. And um, so I, I was uh, I, I bought the concert tickets and had all the albums and the cassettes and wore the concert T-shirts. And, and then um, I translated that into a career playing Christian music on the radio. And then the business exploded in the mid-1990s. Contemporary Christian music became the fastest-growing radio format in the country. It was just huge. It just really became a big deal. And all the major record labels swooped in, and they bought up all of these boutique mom-and-pop Christian labels. And they started making everything bigger budgeted and slicker. And uh, you know we see that even today. And uh, so I, I kind of rode the wave. So I went from a fly-by-night overnight disc jockey to morning show co-host for one of the most popular stations in my town. And part of that was that I just sort of rode the wave of the rise of the industry. And I was in Christian radio until 2002. I played, uh, I was on Kiss FM pop radio for a couple of years after that. So 14 years in FM radio total. Do you have any uh do you have any like like you know being on a being in a Christian radio station do you have any like stories like horror stories from like those days or like um or anything that anything like that you, someone who doesn't know anything about Christian radio would wouldn't expect from a uh Christian radio station Well I'm trying to think you know it was when we had our we like the circumstantial stuff you know I remember the first station, uh, the first building we had was in a field. There were cows all around. And, you know, <laughs> so it wouldn't be uncommon for me to be doing, uh, you know, 
introducing an album and there's like a cow just outside the window. We had a mouse trap in the transmitter room next to us. So we'd be on air doing prayers at night. And all of a sudden you'd hear this snap as <laughs> this poor mouse was dying its last breath. Oh, no. um, just dumb stuff like that. Um, I, you know, they say never meet your heroes. There was a sum of that. There were some people I met who were in uh, the Christian music industry who were lovely. I mean, just amazing people. And this remains true today. You know, we tend to be, we speak about people in terms of these blanketed statements about, uh, well, they're all shills and they're all business mm. people and it's all airbrushed. And there's some of that. But, uh, you know, there's, there are a lot of people who sincerely do what they do because they believe. They, they, feel oh, like they 100%. And they, they love people and they, this is what they feel is their calling. And, um, you know, then there were others. Either they were burned. I'm not going to mention names, but they were just burned out. Uh, the business had made them cynical because it was a business, and they realized how much of it was just money and marketing. Um, there were other people, I feel like, who didn't feel like they could make it in mainstream music. So they bumped over to Christian music, which is an, a niche that they could actually maybe make a living in, but they weren't true believers you know, you meet all kinds in the green rooms, so kind people, rude people, generous people, divas. I think people are people. And in Christian circles, this is, uh, you know, it's the same. In Christian music, you find the sincere, the insincere, the kind, the cruel, and everybody in between. And, and that was an eye-opener for me, you know, to realize that many of the same people that I had seen on the album covers and had this idealized version of who they were, and then you meet them and you realize they're just people for better and worse. Mm. So. Interesting. So how, how did, so you, how did you start the deconversion experience or the deconstructing experience for you? Like how, how did you go from being that form of a Christian to all of a sudden starting to question your faith and deciding to look more into the evidence for your beliefs? You know, some people flip that switch quickly. It's amazing when I hear those stories. They're like, well, I was a devout believer, and then I encountered this, and within two days, I knew it was crap. <laughs> I was not that guy. Um, I think my journey began, actually, it kind of began when I, my best friend had come out to me as gay. It was in the mid-1990s, mm -hmm. and of course, I'd been trained to feel like gay people were going to hell. I made fun of gay people. I was, you know, I was a toxic person about this thing and and he wrote me a letter and he you know he's just like you you don't know this about he hit it very well but he said you know i'm gay and you need to know and we didn't speak for about a year i just uh i you know i couldn't process it and i realized how much i missed the guy and how he was still a beautiful person and still my best friend and what was i doing and i reached back out and we reconnected and I think that is the first time I can really remember deciding I'm going to cut this out of the Bible in my brain. I'm going to take these anti-gay mm. verses, all these judgment verses, and I'm just going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. All right, the rest of the Bible's fine, but I'm not going to do that. And that's probably the first step. And after that, there was the death of a, of a Christian artist. You know, I was supposed to go on the radio and tell everybody that God called him home and this horrible accident where his body was mangled. You know, it made no sense. 
And even as I was doing the prayers and telling everybody online and, you know, doing the website with the tribute, talking about how the Lord is in control, all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That I was doing the whole time. I'm like, this is crap. This makes no sense to me. 9-11 was big for me. I remember, uh, you know, that day everybody's invoking the name of God. Jerry Falwell's blaming gay people. You know, God's judgment because we've taken him out of our country. And I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense. And it it was those kinds of things. You know, it was like a death by a thousand cuts where time and again, I was doing a lot of video production for churches. I would go and I would shoot video, fundraising videos for churches all around the country. You go to all these different churches and you see the people and you see the problems and you realize the humanity of it all. And and you think, no, this is not adding up. And finally, it was in, uh, I want to sing. I mean, I was really going through the journey in 2007, but I stumbled upon a Christopher Hitchens debate video. I think this was 2008. Oh, and, uh, yeah. There's a there's there's big problem. I, you know, I was just working on some graphics, listening to stuff in the background, uh, and I watched this debate play out. And the freaking atheist made a lot of sense, and it kind of blew my mind. And lightning didn't come out of the sky and strike him. You know, God didn't set him on fire and all. <laughs> and um, he really kickstarted my, my journey into questioning. So I went back to Genesis 1-1, read the Bible again, began to get into the history of religion, including other religions. And uh, boy, at the end of that journey, I just realized as hard as it was, and it was very difficult, I realized I just didn't buy it anymore. And so it was a long journey, you know. Probably an intense year, year and a half, but before that, just a lot of little things that were sort of mm. pinging in the back of my brain. Wow, I, it's uh, it, it it's so it's so interesting how how similar it is to the experience that I had with um with with two things. I, I the first guest on Deep Drinks podcast was my dear friend I met in ministry college who was closeted and gay for forty six years of his life. Uh, 45 or some amount of years of his life. And when Australia was voting on the same-sex marriage plebiscide, I was trying to have conversations with Christians online and he was struggling really bad. Uh, and so we'd meet for coffee and would talk about it. And um, and I remember thinking like, man, if the church gets rid of this doctrine, like it did with women having to wear head scarves or, or, being able, or not being able to cut their hair short or um, women not being able to talk in church and things like that, if the church just gets rid of this doctrine in a few years and my friends wasted his entire life, um, you know, let's, let's get down to the brass tacks and let's actually look at what the Bible says and, and is the Bible accurate. And um, I saw how much it was hurting my friend um, not living his authentic self. And and uh, it was, uh, for me, that was that was a chink in the arm for me. But then also the same thing is, uh, so you mentioned watching, I think you in your book you said it was the Hitchens versus Rabbi Boteach. Boteach. Uh, um, uh, debate, and you said, um, well, this will be good, uh, and then, uh-oh, I found him embarrassing, and that's exactly how I felt with the Ken Ham versus Bill Nye debate, so I think I, I think a friend of mine, um, a buddy came over, and I, and I was a struggling Christian, not struggling Christian, but I wasn't actively going to church, a buddy of mine came over, and we're talking about, evol- we're having a couple of drinks, and we're talking about evolution, and I said, oh, it's just a theory, 
and he he said he picked up he's a PhD engineer PhD and he picked up a bottle of water and dropped it and said so is gravity and I said oh yeah you know but that always stayed in the back of my mind and uh, and then I saw this Ken Ham versus Bill Nye debate come up is evolution you know is creation a viable model for uh, and I was like oh this would be good and I remember watching it and just being like uh oh uh oh uh oh and like by the end uh, when they were asking the questions like what if anything would change your mind I felt so pissed off and heartbroken by the way Ken Ham responded uh, and I was just like this is this this doesn't this is dishonest like this is a dishonest way and that for me started my journey um or at least was part of the journey um into it it's amazing how many people i've spoken to on this podcast who have similar experiences with either debates or just one thing um to, to, to like like kind of sets them on a certain trajectory and then it was, they it's funny about things. that debate i think the last questioner in that debate on site was one of uh, my listeners. She sent me a an email and she said, "Look, I got tickets, and oh, they're going to so pass cool. cards around for Q and A. What do you think I ought to ask?" And I'm like, "Well, I can't tell you what you should ask, but if I was there, here's what I would ask. I would ask, what would it take to change your mind? No, and no. That was the last question of the debate. And if you recall, Bill Nye said, "Piece of evidence." would cause me to change my mind. And Ken Ham essentially said, nothing would ever change my mind. And I think that's yeah. a great sort of a microcosm of, of how we defend beliefs over knowledge. Nothing you ever say. How many times have we talked to a devout believer in something and they say, I don't care what you ever say, I will never change my mind. And I think that's mm -hmm. so very telling because the honest answer should be, if I'm wrong, you know, was it uh, the philosopher Bertrand Russell who said, if a thing is true, we should believe it. And if it is not, we should not believe. It. I think that's yeah. basic. Yeah. But if you're in a, a culture where beliefs are defended and not accepted based on the evidence, you know, the, the streams get reversed. I found that was a very telling moment of that debate. I, you've just played, you've just blown my mind. The whole, I did not know that. And the whole a question I ask almost every episode is, and I'm going to ask at the end is what, if anything would change your mind? Uh, and I had no idea that you were in part responsible. Well, I, I think, question. I mean, somebody else may have duplicated the question. Yeah. It's possible that, you know, that someone else asked it, but, but I, 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 there's a good chance it was a member of the audience who was, uh, who was representing for reason out there. So. That's so good. Well, if you are, if you're watching this, um, please, and that was you and you did ask the question, please let us know. Cause that is amazing. That's to, to me that, that quite, if that if it wasn't for that question, I might not be where I am today. Cause that wow. question really, really showed the dishonesty in the, um, in the, uh, conversation. And to be fair, if there are, if there are Christians who are watching, um, who don't want, you know, who aren't, aren't ready to question the faith or anything like that. There are ways to, um, you don't have to be Ken Ham or Ken Toven. There are ways to, to I guess, uh, there, are, there are organizations out there who I think are a bit dishonest, but but I think if you want to go down that path, who who uh, try to marry up the Big Bang Theory and evolution with the Bible. Um, uh, so I mean, you can go check those out if um, that is your thing. But, um, but yeah, it just really showed, I think it just really showed how dishonest um, Ken Ham was. And Another strange coincidence, and I and I, I feel a little uh, uh, a little sad that that this is the case. But um, 
Ken Ham was actually educated only an hour away from me in Brisbane. So I, I live in the Sunshine Coast. The two universities that he was educated at was uh, down like an hour away from where I'm sitting right now. It's like he's it's a, a piece of work, isn't he? I mean, he and the <laughs> whole organization answers in Genesis. Are, they're so constantly tragically wrong. You know, one of the pieces of irony I kept thinking about during that debate with Bill Nye were. Now, he is the person who believes that the eye is irreducibly complex and could only have been designed. It could not have evolved. It is something that, you know, that God conjured into existence as this amazing thing. And the whole time he's wearing scientifically developed prescription sun, uh, prescription eyeglasses for vision correction. <laughs> and the whole time I'm like, <laughs> your intelligently designed eyes required a scientific solution so you can freaking see your notes to finish the debate. I always thought that was interesting. So. Oh, I'd never even picked that up. That's that's um, so amazing. If 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 anyone hasn't watched it, uh, it just just watch it and just 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 count how many times Ken Ham actually brings any evidence rather than just defending that Christians can be scientists. Uh, scientists can be Christians. Sorry and. Um, there are these people who did some important things that are Christian and also there's attack on the Christian realm. Like ask him for actual, actual evidence for a young earth rather than trying to pull apart evolution or talk about how scientists can be Christian too. Uh, yeah. Cheat. You won't, you won't get there. <laughs> um, so, uh, we, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. I want to ask you, what do you think is the best and the worst arguments for the existence of God? Oh man, there are so many. Um, let's let's talk about because I asked this to. Um, I'm sure you know inspiring philosophy, Michael Jones, friend of the show. He he comes on and we we get back we we get back we get in the mud and we talk about we debate over the existence of God. And I asked this on the first time he came on. What are the best best arguments for the existence of God, in your opinion? Well, I mean, I haven't heard a lot of good ones. If if there is a good one, um, you know, maybe something to do with, um, you know, the things that we don't know a God might exist, um, you know, it, that gets us into the questions of whether or not that God would even be a benevolent deity, an involved or personal deity, certainly not. Uh, I just, I haven't heard... I haven't heard great arguments, you know, mostly I just get a litany of, and I'm not going to give you just one. Uh, I just get a litany of crap. You know, uh, Hitler was an atheist. I hear that one and that's crap. That's totally bogus. Uh, he invoked God in Mein Kampf. He had God with us on the Nazi belt buckles. He claimed that the extermination of the Jews was God's good work. You know, um, uh, where do your morals come from? You can't have morality without the objective moral standards. I've heard the complexity of the I argument that proves an intelligent designer. The Bible is true because there are specific places mentioned in the Bible that exist today. Um, <laughs> it, who was it? Was it Matt Dillahunty who said, well, that's like saying that the existence of New York proves Spider-Man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It just makes no sense. Um uh, how did something come from nothing? The abiogenesis argument. Look at the trees. Look at the beauty all around us. Everything happens for a reason. I mean, I just I've heard so much crap over the years that it's it's really hard to to nail down the worst argument in a long litany of bad arguments. And uh, I just think you know, most of the time I hear this, it's from s some apologist. 
And apologetics, by the way, apologist means to speak in defense. These are people defending. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I look at, I think, well, what kind of benevolent God would require an apologist in the first place? Let's say you and I have questions about all this. A benevolent God stops what he's doing, parts the skies, comes down, and clears it up. He doesn't need Ken Ham, doesn't need Pastor John Hagee or Jim Jeffress or, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't need any, it doesn't need Paula White, doesn't need Donald Trump, doesn't need any of these people to tell us what it's. I just think a benevolent God would actually come down and solve things. And if you put a hundred apologists in a room and you ask them about the basics, ask them about a literal Bible, ask them about the Holy Spirit, healing, miracles, speaking in tongues, how to baptize the rapture, whatever. You know, watch them chew each other to ribbons. They can't agree on the basics of their own faith. And I, I think the, the God who is not the author of confusion has done a terrible job of not being confusing. You know, Not only that is, um, no, I tweeted this the other day, no apologist started uh, their belief in God for the reasons they now give when defending it. Do you know what I mean? No one goes like, well, I looked at the cosmological argument and I, I analyzed this. No, no, they, they often grew up Christian or, or, is, or Islamic or Muslim, sorry, or, you know, and but and they found all, there's all these problems with their faith. So they have to go, apologists have to go and like look for the reasons why it's not bullshit, essentially. And it's just like, I, I always, I'm always interested when I, when I ask a, when I ask an apologist, why do you believe? They'll give me all these complicated reasons. Like, that's not why you started believing. They're, they're the defenses for the things you know that I'm going to bring up, but that's not why you started believing. You started believing for, I'm sure, much more mundane reasons. You were brought up that way, or you had an emotional experience, or something, you know, or, or, right. or you feel like God Look, saved you from drugs, or something. You're right. If family and geography are the two main determiners of someone's belief, right? I always there's mm. a. I think there. I've got a fivefold reason that people are stay in the faith. It's family, geography, ritual, community, and comfort. But, you know, if I had been born in Yemen, would I have been a Protestant Christian? <laughs> Almost certainly not, right? If I had been born in China, would I be a Protestant Christian? Almost certainly not. And I think that's incredibly telling. You can break that down by denomination. Uh, you, you know, if I'd been born in Mexico, would I be a Pentecostal? Oh, I'd be certainly be a Catholic because that's a Catholic mm -hmm. culture. I was born in one of the northern states, more likely Episcopal, Lutheran, or Catholic. I mean, it's a, it really uncanny to see that people are products, in almost every case, not all, of family and culture. Where were you born? What was the religion of your parents? And then you congratulate yourself for beating the odds and being one of the, the people who happened to be born in the right faith. I mean, it's very telling. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so I'm going to then uh, throw some some arguments at you then um, for the evidence for of, for theism. Um, what do you think of the cosmological argument? Uh, so whatever begins to exist has a cause of its ex ex existence. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause of its existence. Well, if you go to, and we can get into the Kalam cosmo, uh, cosmological argument as well, which is, I think, what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah, Everything, yeah. everything that, that begins to exist has a cause, a creator. Um, if you go to uh, the proponent, the main proponent of this argument is apologist William Lane Craig. His website is a freaking nightmare, by the way, just <laughs> a nightmare. Because I don't. Uh, no one disagrees that there was a cause. For the universe right oh look something happened there was a singularity and something caused it we do not disagree on this 
But the proponents of the Kalam cosmological argument make this huge leap by saying that if there was a cause, a first cause with a capital F and a C, that has to be an intelligence, uh, benevolent being, super being, divine being. It has mm. to be a God. And then, of course, he takes the huge chasm-sized leap into the biblical God. Okay, well, of course, now it mm. has to be Yahweh. Well, good luck demonstrating that with Kalam. So we don't disagree that, you know, there was a cause. Something happened. I, I actually I actually might disagree with that. I, I might sound really stupid, but I, I – because I had a conversation with some um, Muslim apologists online – and they were saying we have to agree. You have to agree that something started us. And I said, I don't know if that's even a sensical question. I don't even. What do you mean before? Like before the Big Bang? Like from my understanding, time. There was no time before. There was no. I don't even know if you can ask the question. What was before the Big Bang? Or like like what happened so, in the time before space time? Yeah, yeah that really breaks like, your brain. Yeah, it's like um, it gets uh like it gets so complicated that asking like. Uh, you know, questions about first movers or or um, something had to have created us. I don't even know if that's, or, or there has to, had to have been a cause. I don't know. Probably is where my brain goes. When Probably I say cause, cause. I, what I mean is but, something happened and I don't yeah. know what happened. <laughs> they don't know what happened. But, you know, yeah. I, I'm just, but not, I just don't know if we can, I don't even know if that's even, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I just don't no, know. No, if no, that's you're right. It's infinite sensical, regress. Now are we? Is it a multiverse? Right? Or is there another parallel universe? Is, you know what happened? Yeah. You can lose. Well, I was talking to who was it? David McRaney, who was was saying when you get into this stuff, all then you just want to walk into the forest and go carve canoes out of trees because your your brain cannot take any more of this type <laughs> of stuff. Right? Yeah. So I understand what you're saying for sure. Yeah. Uh, the fine tuning argument. So the universe possesses finely tuned physics constants and initial conditions that allow intelligent life to exist. This is due. Um, this is due to necessity, change, or design. It was not due to necessity or chance. So, well, I I think the fine tuning argument's ridiculous. I, in fact, I'm releasing a, a podcast uh, just a couple of weeks with a couple of biologists and uh, a paleontologist, zoologist educators Forrest Valkai and Gutsik Gibbon as we talk about you know fine tuning and and essentially it's a creationism argument but if we look at we look at life around us we don't see fine tuning right the the no. best most finely tuned uh, pieces of engineering are distilled down to the simplest forms of what is being engineered. We don't see that. We see complexity and we see wildly unnecessary complexity, whether it's junk mm -hmm. DNA and RNA. You see the fact that 99.9% .9 of all life on this planet has gone extinct. You see this planet where what it's 97% water uh, or 70% water and we can't, you know, we it's unlivable to humans. 90 plus percent of the water is undrinkable. Our sun gives us cancer. You know, we, we see vestigial bones in animals that don't need them, heavy bones in flying animals, wings on flightless birds, eyes on fish that can't see. You know, this whole idea that everything has sort of been manicured, uh, fine-tuned, is to well, me, uh, it's, it's they're not even trying. They well, see complexity, and they conflate complexity with design. Yeah. Things are wildly complex, but it, 
if you were an engineer, you would not engineer them this way. There's a great book by a biologist, evolutionary biologist, Dr. Abby Hafer, and it's called The Not-So-Intelligent Designer. She goes hard okay. into many of the intelligently designed things that are actual total crap. And an engineer designer would never do it this way. And here's why. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I remember, I think it was Stephen Hawking who said, if the universe is primed for anything, it's the existence of black holes. Like if it's, if it's designed for anything, and which are the most destructive <laughs> things. Yep. You know? um, okay. So that's, so what was that book called? Sorry, the, um, the unintelligent designer is that right yeah it's called the not so intelligent oh, not designer dr abby hafer i've had her on the show a couple of times and she's just she's a killer i mean she just she's in and she's like well this this stupid and this is you know why would god make this the same canal that we use to ex excrete feces and urine. Why would he use all of that stuff for our sex? Like, why would you make the water slide and the sewer pipe the same thing? Why in the world would you put the esophagus and the, you know, the windpipe next to each other? So there were hundreds and hundreds of choking deaths every single year. You know, why would you put this? Why would you do that? And, and she's yeah. got a great point. And then she points to other creatures in nature that actually have a better design. You know, there are tons of animals in the animal kingdom beside the human animal that have much better eyes than we do. Our eyes are not great and they require constant correction by scientists. And why would that be if we were finely tuned and intelligently designed? There's a great many of those examples, wisdom teeth and the appendix and all those types. So. <laughs> I love I, it's excuse my crassness, but um, I think uh, Ricky Gervais says, um, if God hates gay sex so much, why would you why would you put the male G spot up the the ass of the um, you know? It's I haven't like, heard that one, <laughs> yeah, but it does sound like Gervais something. He yeah. Would say. yeah. <laughs> Sorry to be it's it's too early in the morning for me for yeah. those jokes. I felt a little cringe saying that, but you know I am a bit crass myself. So um, uh, what I want to do is I want to jump into talking a little bit about purity culture if you're okay with that. Yeah. Uh, but first I want to shout out your podcast. Could you maybe talk to us about your new podcast you've got coming up? Yeah, well, I've got two. Up. I started the Thinking Atheist podcast based on the website in 2010. Again, the Thinking Atheist is not a person. It is uh, an icon. And then I um, uh, have, uh, you know, all of my video content and podcast and whatnot there. It's kind of a hub. There are resources you can go and link there for books and, uh, and uh, other free thought websites. I need to update the website. I'm kind of a one-man show, but thethinkingatheist.com. I've thought about whether or not I should change it because, you know, atheism really is a statement about the gods I don't believe in. I really, these days, have led more with humanist. But mm. I found that people who are on a journey will Google the word atheist mm. and they will find this community. And, and so for that reason, I've decided to stick with it. So uh, it's thethinkingatheist.com, or you can search for the podcast on all major podcast apps. And I, I just launched in August a brand new show because, you know, I was looking for a fresh challenge because I'm a storyteller and because I was a fan of a classic broadcaster. His name was Paul Harvey. I wasn't a fan of his politics, but he was one of the greatest storytellers ever. And he had a weekly, or not weekly, he had a, every weekday, daily 
feature ran about four minutes long. It was called The Rest of the Story. And he would tell a true story with kind of a kicker or a surprise at the end. And he passed away, you know, years ago. And I haven't been able to find anybody who does what he did. And so I've sort of taken up that mantle. Obviously, I'm not trying to be Paul Harvey. I'm me. I've got my own style. But true stories, we're talking about five-minute vignettes. It can be ancient history. It could have been something wild and interesting that happened last week. It can be celebrity news, true crime, weird news, you know, stories of the strange. And um, they're just fun. And they're five minutes. And they release every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So it's not like it's a big time commitment. It's a little soundbite. You can just jump in, get your nugget of whatever happened, uh, leave with a smile, and get on with your day. And if you uh, want to subscribe, it's on all the major podcast apps, True Stories with Seth Andrews, or just go to the website, truestoriespodcast.com. Awesome. Awesome. They're fun. And of they they it looks it looks fun because i i i want to jump into this and have a few li listens i can imagine in the future you might get some people like animating some of the stories i can i can see that because it's so um short and it'd be interesting I, I haven't i haven't checked it out um but i'm i'm looking forward to oh, checking I, it's out hard i think especially for content producers we're so busy making stuff People often ask me, what do you listen to? And I do listen a lot to a lot of audiobooks, a few podcasts here and there, but, but mostly I find myself producing stuff. So it's hard to carve out. You know, if someone's like, hey, take three hours and listen to this long form show, I'm like, who's got three hours? Who's got 30 <laughs> minutes? So yeah. I, you know, don't feel obligated to do that. But I do. And I also know that there's a squillion podcast out there. But I, I have yet to find anybody who's doing it this way. And, you know, I, I can't do a lot of stuff well, but I feel like I've, I'm a pretty good storyteller. And so uh, I've, I've gotten good feedback and it's getting noticed. And, you know, I think people have a good time with it. I, I think anyone, I think people could listen to you read a, um, a manual for like a VCR or something You're very because kind. your voice is just, <laughs> You're very and uh, of course, um, the, 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 we want to talk about purity culture. So just so everyone is aware, I recently picked up Deconverted because Oz, who I'm sure, you know, Oz from, um, Tang, he's yep. been on this show before. And he said he was going through, you know, the books that helped him with his deconversion process for me it was um the biggest one was god is not great by christopher hitchens that to me to me i, I read that every now and again and it makes me there's something about that, that the poetry of how he talks and stuff um was and 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 oz also liked that book um of, of course like the god delusion and you know all the classics but one i hadn't i hadn't read was yours and and that was the one that he said was by far the most impactful for him in his journey Wow. And I was like, I've got to check out this book. So I listened to uh, Deconverted uh, in the midst of the Christmas chaos. So the first half of it is, in my mind, marred with the Christmas chaos of uh, family drama at the time. But the second half of it, um, book was fantastic. And I was like, okay, that book was really good. I really enjoyed it. Thank so you. I decided, I think yesterday, to start on uh, Christianity made me talk like an idiot. Oh, no, it was yes not yesterday, the day before. Um, I finished it in one day. It was... It was to me, Christianity, we're talking like an idiot, which is your newest book, was amazing. 
uh, it was it was exactly it met me exactly where I where I where I was um, in where my journey was. It's just it's funny, it's interesting, it's I love it. So, Thank but there was a part of this this book, and everyone, the links in the description if you want to go listen to this or read it. Um, and uh, using the link will help this channel out as well. But the um, there is a section in this book that I'm really thankful that you went into, which is chapter 10, the chapter on purity culture. And I was wondering if we could have a look at that together. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, let me just pull it up. Um, so I don't know. I'm going to get a physical version. Do you have a, 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 the ability to get signed copies or anything? I'm, I need to get a signed copy from you one day. Maybe when I come over oh, to dude. the States. Yeah, I mean, uh, when we're done with the show, just drop me a message and I'll, I'll just send you one. Yeah. Oh, awesome. That'd be hey, Merry Christmas fantastic. for last oh. month. So, oh, thank you so yeah. much. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Allow me to bless you in the Lord with a thank copy you. of my yeah, brother. Well, so, that yeah. would be that'd be awesome. I'm glad uh, so you mentioned um you mentioned you have this whole um topic about purity culture. Could you quickly just give us a rundown about what what the purity culture was like when you grew up? You mentioned, and just to just so I don't cut you off because I have a tendency of doing that, you mentioned um uh masturbation clubs uh, essentially where <laughs> people would hold each other accountable i've talked about that a lot on this channel i i used to run those clubs i used to be part of those clubs and it was so funny to have you know a bunch of us teenage men would get together and be like we need to pray away this temptation to masturbate and to look at women and then by a Sunday, when some, Sunday would come around, everyone would be messaging each other, pray, 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 because it's been a week since anyone's, you know, even thought about a lustful <laughs> thing. And everyone is running out to the bush to pray by themselves for the for Ben who's struggling. And then Ben is praying for Danny and Danny. Like, it's just, it's all, we're all, yeah. So very much related to it. But anyway, tell us about how, what purity culture was like for you uh, in the church. Well, you that's actually, you know, it's funny. That's the topic of the speech I'm giving it. And it will eventually, when I retire it from the road, it'll go on YouTube that talks about a lot of this stuff. But uh, purity culture is usually fundy religion-based, most often Christianity and Islam. It is a culture that uh, is an abstinence culture, save yourself until marriage, because marriage is a sacred thing. You will consecrate yourself before your spouse and God. And uh, it's just a nightmare because, you know, we figure the median age for puberty is maybe 12. And the average age for marriage in this country being 29, I think. So you think about it, you know, all those years in between would be premarital sex, your sexually activated self is raging you're a hormonal young person and you you know the the attraction mechanisms are going full kick and then you have an entire culture of people saying you're unnatural you're lustful you're <laughs> sinful you're carnal pray it all away kind of thing and if you can't wait there's actually an instruction in the bible that says it's better for you to marry than to burn with lust so then you see people who, you know, they leap into marriage well before they're ready because they don't want to be an adulterer. You see promises given to God. This was true in our school. They had a true love waits program or an abstinence program. The girls would actually be given rings to put on their wedding ring finger and there'd be a prayer that said, I promise not to have sex with anyone until I get married. And of course, they're just rigged for failure. Uh, if they had had sex, they were sort of ruined or deflowered or whatever. 
then they would have to come back and throw themselves at the mercy of the church and they would be deemed what they called new virgins where the lord even though physically they weren't a virgin god had cleansed their heart uh you know we saw boys brought in and they would be told you know keep it in your pants cross your legs that was sort of their solution good luck with that um women though were mostly sort of anointed or anointed they were targeted as the gatekeepers for sexual purity don't be a harlot don't show too much skin don't tempt the men don't be a jezebel and so the uh thinking my, was my, my wife just texted me and said i had one of those rings she must be <laughs> the thinking <laughs> was that you know even if a man it even if he lusts it's the woman's fault I mean, she mm. she's lustful. She is an object of lust. And boy, this is right out of the Bible, right? Eve tempted Adam. She was responsible for that uh, forbidden fruit. Uh, and how did God punish her? He punished her sexually. He said, you will have pain in childbirth and your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Meaning that her attraction to her husband was part of a curse handed down by God. And we see this throughout the Bible. Women are blamed for the bad shit that men do, you know? And so it's a whole culture of dysfunction. They set you up for failure. Then, you know, there might be church discipline involved. If you fail in your faith, you fail in your carnality, you're brought before people and you have to apologize to the church. The masturbation partner thing was a story that a friend of mine brought where the pastor wanted the men to have an accountability partner. So if they felt yeah, the need what... to self-pleasure, they're supposed to call a buddy and say, pray with me. And that's supposed to produce a cold shower effect. And now you look back on it and you think this is so offensively inappropriate. Yeah. You know, the permissions that the religion and the church elders and the parents and the pundits and the pastors and you know, the congregants, the permission they gave themselves to peer in everybody's window and pass judgment upon them is just astounding. And as I say in the book, and I say in the speech that's coming up, why would we ever take sex advice from the Bible? The Bible got everything <laughs> else wrong. Right? Cosmology and, and meteorology, and it got uh, history wrong and morality. You know, it's got everything wrong. Prophecy. The Bible's historically wrong about everything. Why in the world would we take the Bible's advice on anything? Yeah. And, um, so yeah, it was it was pretty rough growing up. You know, you you was a constant repent and sin, repent or sin and repent, uh, sin and repent thing. Where you know you do what you feel natural. You would feel these feelings of attraction and even lust. You would find yourself, you know, in a dark space with your partner doing all kinds of things. And then when it was over and and the heat of the moment waned, you thought Jesus just saw that and you dropped to your knees and say, "Please forgive me. I won't do it again." And then two days later, you did it again. And this is the cycle many people never get out of. So. It's, uh, yeah. And, and this is, this is why this is so important. Um, so for those who don't know, um, deep drinks this year is moving into panels as well. So we're doing deep drinks panels. And one of the first we'll be doing is a panel. I'm about to have a baby. Um, my wife and I have our first baby through IVF. So it's going to be a bit touch and go until we get the panels ready. Uh, obviously, with I'm not going to do it right around baby time because <laughs> I don't know how chaotic that's going to be. But when we do get the panels up and going, I'll, we're doing one on purity culture. And one of the guests that will be on the panel is one of the youth that was in 
the these masturbation purity clubs when I was the youth pastor. Uh, and he's going to share part of his journey in that. And um, so uh, when hearing about what you what you're what you've said in your book, like to me, it is so important because uh, I remember talking to recently, I've spoken a lot to secular friends about, you know, the first time you uh, had, I guess, m mutual hand sex with someone or you hooked up with someone or things like that, you things you do in your teenage years, um, I would ask them, you know, did you feel guilt or shame afterwards? And they're like, what? Like, no, what are you talking? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? And for me, I always did. I always, every time, every time I would express uh, my sexuality with someone or I would kiss someone who I wasn't dating or something like that, like I would feel this tremendous amount of guilt and shame. And not, not only that, but that actually extended right into my marriage. So my wife and I, who's watching at the moment, we waited till we were married to have sex. We did other stuff and we're pretty good at it. But when we uh, when we actually had sex for the first time was on our wedding night. And that the even 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 to this day, I still sometimes get anxiety around having sex. So before having sex, I'll sometimes get anxiety or afterwards I'll feel guilty or, or anxious or or shameful. And it's like one out of 10 times when I first got married that I wouldn't feel these horrible feelings associated with sex. And it, it all comes back to the purity culture and the, the, the stuff that I was taught in church about, um, I love what heathen queen says, who I've seen this morning has just been, um, <laughs> canceled on Twitter or her account's been suspended, but she said, um, not giving into the desires of, your body, not, uh, not, um, not respecting the desires of your body. And I was like, that, that just rung so true to me. Uh, not honoring the needs of your body. Sorry. Is the, is the phrase I'm rambling a little bit. Sorry. Well, but, you know, um, there's a dark side to that too. Uh, a, a, another dark side. Mm. I've heard a lot of stories from people who they actually waited. They, they made it. They did everything but sex until they got married. And then the first time they had sex was on their honeymoon night and it was horrible. It was terrible. Mm. No one knew what to do. They knew nothing about their body or their partner's body. They didn't even know if they were physically compatible, which is a massive part of the compatibility mm. question. And it was terrible. And they wrestled with shame and all that baggage that the church had saddled them with. And many people carry it for, for a long, long time. They end up maybe is trapped in a marriage, the, the contract's already signed, they realize too late that we aren't mm. compatible in this very important way. It's just terrible. And beyond that, I have discovered that the church knows that if it can control your sexuality, it has all of you. Mm. So because, you know, who you are as a sexual creature relates to so much of your life, who you're attracted to, who your partners are, how you define family, you know, how you live. And if they can get your sexuality, they can stamp a brand of control and ownership on that. They've got you. And it's an amazing moment of liberation when you can say, no, 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 you don't get the key to my private spaces. You don't get mm. to tell me what I do or how I do it. And I do not give you permission. That's a moment of real liberation. It's sometimes very difficult to get there, but it's important that people do get there. Because once you're able to do that, your whole world opens up. And I think that's when real healing and liberation can begin. Yeah, for sure. I'm so glad that uh, my partner and I didn't have that problem with um, 
with uh, not being sexually compatible. Um, we just luck of the draw. But I know, I know so many people who, yeah, it must be so hard for them to end up in the bedroom, not know what to do, and then hate it. <laughs> like that would be an, a nightmare. And what a horrible way to start a marriage. So you give these uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, six pieces of advice that you would give to your younger self. And I was wondering if we could quickly um, just go through each step. Uh, so I'll read just a little bit of the first part. You say, ignore the Bible. And you said, if you pardon my expression, Christianity knows fuck all about sex. The Bible's authors were constantly on the wrong side of cosmology, geology, meteor meteorology, history, and almost everything else addressed in its truths. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. Yeah, you um, the same Bible that said that, you know, that, um, uh, had, you know, would banish women when they were on their period, they'd banish them from town for a week. You know, this was the Bible's great wisdom. Uh, mm. The same um, Bible that uh, Christian tradition that had Lilith, who was apparently, allegedly, according to Babylonian mythology and some Christian traditions, the first wife of Adam, who was a sexually liberated woman. She even wanted to be on top, you know, she demanded <laughs> equality. Well, she wasn't going to work out. So she gets excised, you know, they kick her out of the garden and she's demonic and she goes off to do demonic things. So Eve can come in and submit and be the good girl kind of deal. You know, and, and you think about the, the Bible talks about how Jesus was conceived essentially via ghost sex. It was Mary asked for consent. No, God said, oh, good for you. You're about to be the mother of a child. And then the Holy Spirit impregnates her. I mean, sex throughout the Bible is so freaking dysfunctional. So yeah, don't take sex advice from the Bible. These people knew nothing about anything. They were mostly a bunch of sexist dudes who uh, who considered women property in the spoils of war anyway. You know, throw it away. You don't need it. Yeah, uh, and women will be saved through childbearing. That's always a, a, a scripture I never hear many people talk about in the New Testament. Um, do solo runs. Um, thou shall not masturbate. Um, I would wager that many of those primates are quite like um, qu are quite likely spanking their own monkey. Self pleasure is simply pleasure. Yeah, yeah we were warned. Um, you know, you're going to go blind. You're going to grow hair on your. <laughs> Do you palms. really? There's those are the oh, they're almost tropes. Um, where. They would say you're going to grow hair on your palms if you masturbate or you may go blind. And of course, these were things they would use to try to scare young people into not self-pleasuring. And of course, you're still trying to discover what's going on. My body's in flux. Everything's on fire. You know, it's everything. And they've set you up so that even in your private space, the eye in the sky is always watching. Hmm. And so, I thought, you know, after the fact... You know, self-pleasure is simply pleasure. I think the statistic is around 90% of men and I think 75% of women, adult women or women, men and female, men and women over the age of 14, I believe, masturbate. And it's, you know, it's a, a subject that makes a lot of people blush. Hell, sometimes it makes me blush. I'm a shy person in that way. But you know, this whole idea that the church has given itself permission to your private space and that somehow you're ruining yourself with carnality and lust and sin and you've betrayed your future spouse and blah, blah, blah. It's just a bunch of crap. You know, mm. it, it is, uh, it's okay. It, mm. Everybody, almost everybody does it. You're not ruining yourself. 
And I think we have to get over this sort of prudishness and more importantly, this attitude that someone else is watching or that if I don't do it their way, I am damaged goods. We have to get get rid of that and enjoy sex for what it is. And sex comes in a great many forms. It's part of the human experience and it's beautiful. Yes. Uh, this one, you said, I can hear the religious berserk losing their, um, berserkers losing their shit over this one. Have premarital sex. Yeah, yeah. A, back, a background of sexual experience doesn't make you an adulterer, nor is it the church's business. Learn Absolutely. to protect yourself emotionally and physically. And as, as a responsible and liberated person, enjoy what you enjoy. And I love that. I think it's important to protect yourself emotionally and physically, obviously. It's, uh, you know, there's STIs and, and there's way, you know, you might not be ready to have sex. That's totally fine. You can, you can never have sex if you don't want to, but if you want to have sex and you meet someone who else, who else wants to have sex, great. There's no downside. You know, if you, if you're, if you're enthusiastically consenting of legal age or whatever, I, you know, who cares? I mean, I, I, this whole idea that who told you not to do it in the first place? And it's that we always end up coming back to these same Bible misogynists who were trying to control people, especially women. And I think about all the time and all the years wasted that people should have been exploring and learning and being human beings. Get educated. Learn what sex is. How does it work? What's happening in your body? What's happening in their bodies? How does it all play out? And then, and then go on a journey with it. And, you know, as long as everybody is being safe and responsible and everybody is enthusiastically consenting, I think, you know, be you, do you any way that uh, you, you feel fulfilled and good for you. That's, that's great. And this is a big one. Live with someone before marrying them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell us a bit about that. It, when I was growing up, if you live with someone before you got married, we called it shacking up or living in sin. <laughs> And some people still call it that, right? Ah, uh, you're not married. Didn't sign on the uh, the dotted line. They're living in sin. Well, I don't think you can really know someone unless you live with them. Yeah, especially mm. in there is a chemical change that happens when we are infatuated. There is we are literally chemically high on someone, which is why you'll meet people <laughs> who have been dating for six, nine months. And they're like, oh, we never argue. And they're the most perfect person in the world. And it's just so amazing. But you're high. You are literally <laughs> chemically high on that person. And it often takes 12 to 18 months for the amygdala to reactivate and for that chemical imbalance to sort of measure out where you start to see people not through the rosy glasses. And I think if you live in the same space, you get to see each other. They get to see each other at your best and your worst. You get to see each other when you're cranky, when you have the flu. You get to see each other when things are not great. You know, you really get to peel back the onion. And that is when you can make an informed decision. Beyond that, I really think that a lot of people who live together aren't considered legitimate families because they haven't stood in front of a judge or a priest and signed a piece of paper. And I think that's a bunch of crap. I think family comes in a great many forms. You don't have to have a piece of paper to be family. So live in the same space and build your family the way you want to on your terms. And if it's a marriage or something else, it makes no difference. You're still a family. And I think those are totally legitimate. Yeah. Awesome. 
And the last one, uh, have fun with it. By nature, I have been, uh, I have never been very adventurous, but I have come to realize how much time and energy I once wasted judging those who are. And I can, I can totally relate to, not to the, to judging those who are adventurous, but to, um, to, for me, I spent so much energy trying not to, uh, I guess, have fun, trying to resist the urge to have fun uh, in my life, um, especially my teen years. And it's exhausting. And I love that you just end with simply have fun with it. It's amazing how often we looked down our noses at people who did things that we considered to be too different or, you know, they were too different. You know, they didn't validate us in that way. How much time and energy had I wasted judging people? And now I, you know, not spending all my time looking down my nose and seeing the different as aberrant but just part of the wide spectrum of the human experience, I'm amazed at how it's opened up my life. I mean, I, I've been introduced to so much more beauty and diversity and, and how it's enriched me in ways that I never once thought possible. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a conservative person personally, not politically, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm that guy. You know, I, my idea of a wild night is to mix in some regular coffee with the decaf. That's my idea of being wild. I'm just that guy, <laughs> you know, I, I love people, but I'm really kind of an introvert. Um, and I'm not adventurous really in any way. And that's just, that's just how I am. But you know, where I used to look at people who would experiment and do a lot of this, you know, stuff that was sort of out of the box, I would be like, wow, that's freaky. That's bizarre. That, that's aberrant. That's perverse. And now I think good for you. You know, if, if you want to do whatever, as long as you all are enthusiastically consenting, whatever your kink or thing is, knock yourself out. You know, life's mm. short. Go and be happy and have fun with it. And to be able to do and feel and say that out loud is liberating. It's just mm. so amazingly freeing. That's judgment I don't have to carry around anymore. And it opens me up to people and uh, the diversity of people that I had once rejected. And my life's better now that my tent has expanded in that way. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, yeah, I agree. I agree with everything you've said in the, in that chapter of the book. It's um, I, I, I encourage everyone to go read Christianity. Maybe talk like an idiot. I, uh, we're coming up to the end of the show. I do have some questions, but I would be totally, um, totally ashamed, or I don't know what the word is, but I, I need to show you something. So last night, my beautiful wife and I watched your, um, your uh, talk on the satanic panic which mm. is a fantastic video just type in satanic panic seth andrews amazing talk that you gave at a um, conference about the satanic panic of the 80s um i remember this a year ago or something and it reminded me of something that my mother was obsessed with uh and uh not what not this is not the wrong word she she had a few and she liked them they were cool and I decided to start a collection and I thought you could maybe uh, comment on this collection. So I ordered them online and the, the place that I ordered them from, they paid for half of the postage because they believed that I was doing it as some form of ministry. So you mentioned this in your, um, do you know what I'm talking about? You mentioned this as part of your satanic panic, but so I, I've got a huge box here of these. I'm trying to see here. Hang on. Are those religious tracks? Oh, shit tracks. Yeah. I've got Chick a whole tracks. collection. There is hundreds 
of these different books that'll tell you different ways that the um the the world is poisoning somebody loves me um this is a famous one this thing this was the first one this was your life the little little things that people put even still today i've seen people in australia handing them out on halloween uh down at the gold coast yeah for those Um, not familiar uh chick tracks are a series of tiny comic books that were invented by a guy named jack chick he's dead now but he had these things printed as kind of a ministry. And I mean, they've been printed by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions. I mean, I can't, I can't believe how many have been made. And I think they're made even today, of course. Um, and they would be left yeah. on doorsteps and put in trick-or-treat bags and put under windshield wipers. And it's all fear porn. You know, you don't want to go really to hell is. and burn forever. And the devil is waiting in the bush. And, and dungeons and dragons will make you become possessed with demons. And it was just horrifying stuff, much of it targeted to young children. And so, yeah, chick tracks are just insidious, horrible things. And in fact, I think you can see a bunch of them online. Just Google chick tracks and look at some of the offensive stuff that they hand out to kids. It'll blow your mind. Blow your mind. Yeah. And they, some of them, some of them are actually rare collector's items now because they they went out of print because the doctrine was too uh, fucked up. Um, yeah. But it's it's funny they thought they they so they went halves in the postage for me, which was like forty US dollars, um, because they were like, oh, we want to, you know, this is part of the ministry. We we pay for people's postage internationally. I'm like, okay, great. It's really a weak kind <laughs> of evangelism, too. I think it's you know instead of engaging somebody one on one. Instead of going out and doing the hard work of proselytizing as a minister of the gospel, instead you just take this and stick it in somebody's uh, in the door, <laughs> and you get to go home and pat yourself on the back and say, "I have done God's good work today." I mean, it's really a kind of theological masturbation. I think. I think you are. You're. You've told yourself that you've done something of substance. And the truth is, your your lazy ass stuck a piece of paper in somebody's door, and you walked <laughs> off. You haven't done anything. I find that interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I just I I love this, and I was like, I got to start a collection. This is just this is this will one day not be around. And I just it's it's yeah. a blast from the past. So yeah. Uh, so let's jump into some Q and A. Uh, I have a few questions. Let's get through them. Uh, I'll try and get through as many as possible before right. we run out of time. I'll try time. to make the answers short for you. So. <laughs> So what advice would you give to someone who is questioning their faith? And I was hoping you could answer both intellectually and how to process it emotionally. I I would say, first of all, you have to frame it this way. Any worthy God would never punish questions and would never punish you for trying to live an honest life. A worthy God would never threaten you would never say that doubt is a sin, which he does in the Bible, that God would never threaten hell for noncompliance. A worthy God would say, you're doing your best trying to figure it out. I respect that. And I think you start there. Then I think you have to get into the man-made nature of religions, dissect it, understand how it was made, who voted the books of the Bible in, why they disagree, why they make no sense in this way. You know, I, I think it's okay. Emotionally, I think you're going to drag behind yourself emo- uh, intellectually. When I was working through it logically, I knew in my mind this wasn't washing, but emotionally I was behind because I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to go to hell. What happens if I'm wrong? That's natural. Allow that to happen. If you move your mind forward and ask the questions, 
your heart, I believe, will follow. It takes a while. I think you surround yourself with other people who are also questioners, who are curious, who are critical and unafraid to be so. And give yourself time and grace. Don't punish yourself. If you don't know, say, I don't know. And, um, you know, just take it one day at a time. You know, take a deep breath, move forward, commit yourself to trying to figure it out. And I make the same commitment that I think anybody should make. If there is evidence for a God somewhere that I discover tomorrow, I would want to know that. That's mm. what an honest life looks like. And I think that's the goal. Awesome. That's great advice. What advice would you give to someone who is maybe has maybe crossed that line? They know now now no longer consider themselves a Christian, a Muslim, a Hindu, and they want to come out to their friends and family as a non-believer. Well, I think there's a cost benefit that only the individual can navigate. You have to determine what you are willing to endure. And I think it's situational. It's going to be different for everybody. Someone may come out to a religious family member and they kind of raise an eyebrow, but it's not a big deal. Somebody else may come out to a religious family member and it means that they ignite the whirlwind or ignite ignite the wildfire. I don't know. I got my metaphors confused. Now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's crazy. You know, it, things get awful. So everybody's going to have to determine what's the cost benefit for me, but frame it like this. Your journey belongs to you. You don't owe anybody else anything. You are not on this planet to keep other people comfortable. Trust me, they're not mitigating their value system or opinion for you. Why in the world would you participate in a double standard where you're the one sitting on your hands to keep them happy? That's not life. That's not a fulfilled, authentic life. And I wish for you an authentic life. Will you lose some people if you live authentically and they know it? Yeah. But that says more about them than it says about you. Right? It, it says that their love was always conditional. It says that they are willing to cut a cord with you because you do not validate them. That tells you something about them. And that's their fault, not yours. Life is short. And I think you deserve the gift, a gift you can give yourself every day, an authentic life. So no matter how difficult it may be, that's my hope and my dream for you is you can get to that point where you can be loud and proud, be you on your terms without apology. Wow. That's really good. Um, yeah, that's really good. I'm going to skip a couple of questions for the sake of time. Um, what, I'll, I'll go to the last two questions I always ask guests, um, usually ask guests, uh, depending on if it's appropriate or not. What is the most plausibly true religion that you don't believe in? <laughs> plausibly, plausibly true. I'll tell you this. You know, was it uh, Robert McNamara who said, don't answer the question you were asked, answer the question that you wish was asked. Uh, so I may, I may be doing that here. I hope not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But if, if I was anything, I would probably be a Buddhist. I know that there, Buddhism is, there's so many different shades of it, but there is a non-theistic Buddhism. There's sort of a non-spiritual Buddhism, which is more of a philosophy of peace and whatnot. And don't, don't come after me because I know there is, there are shades of Buddhism that are not peaceful, but but overall, if I had to pick one, I mean, 
Yeah, I, I kind of like the kindness, uh, you know, the mindfulness thing. Yeah. Living in the moment, uh, you know, centering yourself, Buddhist in that way. I mean, that's uh, probably, probably my favorite if I had to pick. Yeah, I, uh, it's, it's funny. Most people choose Buddhism. It's funny. Um, uh, even the Christians I've had on. Yeah. Uh, okay. And the last question, which um, is, I guess, this is all come full circle. Uh, what, if anything, would change your mind? Well, I think that answer is, has a, t the, the question is a twofold answer. The first is Bill Nye's answer. You know, give me some, give me a good piece of evidence. Give me some reasons to change my mind. And I think that's great. I mean, that, that you're not defending a belief in that point because you need to defend the belief like you would defend like a, a child from danger. You know, you are honestly saying, well, whatever's true, let's figure that out. So I think to change my mind on something, I would need evidence. And people will sometimes say to me, well, Seth will never change his mind on atheism and i'm like you are talking to someone who's changed his mind about almost everything that he once <laughs> believed so to tell me that i'm not capable of change or changing my mind is just a cop-out and it's stupid on the issue of god specifically a benevolent god i'm asked the question what would it take for you to believe in god and i used to give the same answer well a good piece of evidence but I kind of like the answer that Matt Delahunty gave. If you believe in an omnipotent God, I wouldn't even need to know what it would take to change my mind because God would know. An omnipotent, omniscient God would know exactly what it would take to convince me. Hmm. And he would have already done it. That's a great answer. So, hmm. you know, if there is a benevolent, all-powerful, all-knowing deity... He would already know exactly what that would take, and he would have already done it. Uh, I think that's my favorite answer so far. Wow, that's 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 fantastic. That's it. That's a good answer. I, I remember getting stopped in the street by a street preacher asked me what would change my mind um, about the um, evidence, and I wish I thought of this at the time, but I thought of it later on. Um, which is for me to believe in the God, the God of the Bible, as a literal. Like if you take the Bible literally, it would take the same thing for me that um that I would oh my gosh I'm jumping on words. It would be the same evidence I need to believe in a married bachelor. That is, the God of the Bible is so whatever whatever would require me to believe in a married bachelor. It would be the same evidence I need to believe in the God of the Bible. Now, and that course, opens up a whole other thing, but because now all right, let's say that I believe in a God. All right, well now I believe that now there is a God, and you've shown me the evidence or whatever. That still doesn't answer the question of whether that God is benevolent. What if it's a malevolent, nasty, mischievous, sadistic God? Would that God deserve worship? I mean, there are a whole other series of questions that would come after an acceptance of the data that proved a God. You know, there's a whole rabbit's hole that you could fall down into after that. Some some of the earliest Christians believe that of the Old Testament God. They believe that Jesus was a deity that came to save us from the malevolent god of the old testament oh, and then wow. we should reject the old testament um so marcion of sinope um was the teacher of that um i think marcionites anyway um i digress thank you so much seth for coming on deep drinks podcast it's been an absolute pleasure make sure everyone to go check out links to the books in the description uh and the podcast thinking atheist and 
True Stories with Seth Andrews. Next week, we have um, Holy Kool-Aid on Thomas Westbrook to talk about miracles. Does God heal amputees? This will be a really fun episode. Although it's it's on the same day that our due date is for our baby, so it might get cancelled. Please bear with me <laughs> as, uh, as we have a baby. Um, thank you so much, Seth, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Is there any last things you'd like to say to the audience before we leave? No, I mean, just thanks for letting me sit and play in the sandbox with you. Congratulations on the upcoming birth of your child. And uh, I think if I was to reiterate anything, it's is that people deserve an authentic life. Families like to blackmail family members and say, this is not how we raised you or you're embarrassing us or those types of things. But, you know, we are here on this planet for a finite time. I think you deserve authenticity. And there's a, a real joy and freedom, it, despite the outward conflicts and all the junk that people throw at you and the challenges you might have with the boss. I mean, all those things are real. But in here, in your heart, in your mind, in your, in your person, there's no gift you can give yourself like living authentically. It's just, it, it is the most amazing thing about leaving superstition. It's a gift that I feel like I get to give to myself every single day. I wouldn't trade it. People ask, would you ever go back to religion? I say, no, no, I'm, I'm better now. I'm more centered. I'm not in conflict. I don't live in shame. Uh, I get to be curious. I get to discover the world. I get to learn new stuff all the time. I mean, it's just, I feel more alive than I ever have. And that's, I think my hope and my dream for everybody else. Be authentic, take the journey. Live the moments because there may be no tomorrow. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Everyone, we'll see you next week and love you all. Goodbye.